Chapter Fourteen of the Chestermark Instinct. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Chestermark Instinct by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter Fourteen. The Midnight Summons. The search party separated outside the bank, not too well satisfied with the result of its labors. The old antiquary walked away, obviously nettled that he was not allowed to pursue his investigations further. Betty Fosdyke and the solicitor went across to the hotel in deep conference. The Earl accompanied Starmidge and Polk to the police station, and there the detective laid down a firm outline of the next immediate procedure. It was of no use to half-do things, he said. They must rouse wholesale attention. Once more the press must be made use of. The sudden disappearance of Mrs. Carswell must be noised abroad in the next morning's papers. A police notice describing her must be got out and sent all over the kingdom. And, last, but certainly not least, Lord Ellerstine must offer a substantial reward for the recovery of, or news of, his missing property. Let the Chestermarks adopt their own method, if they had any, of finding the alleged absconding manager. He, Starmidge, preferred to solve these mysteries by ways of his own. It was growing near to dusk when all their necessary arrangements had been made and Starmidge was free to seek his long-delayed dinner. He had put himself up, of his own choice, in a quiet and old-fashioned inn near the police station, where he had engaged a couple of rooms and found a landlady to his liking. He repaired to this retreat now, and ate and drank in quiet, and smoked a peaceful pipe afterwards, and was glad of a period of rest. But as he took his ease, he thought and pondered and by the time that evening had fairly settled over the little town, he went out into the streets and sought the ancient corner of Scarnham, which was called Corn Market. Starmidge wanted to take a look at the house in which Joseph Chestermark spent his bachelor existence. Since his own arrival in the town, he had been learning all he could about the two Chestermarks, and he was puzzled about them. For a man who was still young, Starmidge had seen a good deal of the queer side of life and had known a good many strange people. But so far he had never come across two such apparently curious characters as the uncle and nephew who ran the old-fashioned bank. Their evident indifference to public opinion puzzled him. He could not understand their ice-cold defiance of what he himself called law. He never remembered being treated as they had treated him. For Starmidge, when on duty, considered himself as much the representative of justice as any ermined and coiffed judge could be, and he had been accustomed, so far, to attentive and respectful consideration. But neither Gabriel nor Joseph Chestermark appeared to have any proper appreciation of the dignity of a detective sergeant of the criminal investigation department, and their eyes had regarded him as if he were something very inferior indeed. Starmidge, though by no means a vain man, felt nettled by such treatment, and he accordingly formed something very like a prejudice against the two partners. That prejudice was quickly followed by suspicion, especially in the case of Joseph Chestermark. According to Starmidge's ideas, the bankers, if they really believed Horbury to have absconded, if certain securities of theirs really were missing, if they really thought that Horbury had carried them off, and the Countess of Ellersdeen's jewels with them, ought to have placed every information in their power at the disposal of the police. It was suspicious, and strange, and not at all proper, that they didn't. 
and it was suspicious, too, that the housekeeper, Mrs. Carswell, should take herself off after a brief exchange of words with Joseph. It looked very much as if the junior partner had either warned her to go, or had told her to go. Why had she gone then, when she might have gone before, and why in such haste? Clearly, considering everything, there were grounds for believing that there was some secret between Mrs. Carswell and Joseph Chestermark. Anyway, rightly or wrongly, Starmidge was suspicious of the junior partner in Chestermark's bank, and he wanted to know everything that he could find out about him. He had already learnt that Joseph, like his uncle, was a confirmed bachelor, and lived in an old house at the corner of Cornmarket, somewhat, so far as the town folk could judge, after the fashion of a hermit. Starmidge would have given a good deal for a really good excuse to call on Joseph Chestermark at that house, so that he might see the inside of it. Indeed, if he had only met with a better reception at the bank, he would have invented such an excuse. But if Gabriel was icily standoffish, Joseph was openly sneering and contemptuous, and the detective knew that no excuse would give him admittance. Still, there was the outside. He would look at that. Starmidge was a young man of ideas as well as of ability, and without exactly shaping his thought in so many words, he felt, vaguely perhaps, but none the less strongly, that just as you can size up some men by the clothes they wear, so you can get an idea of others by the outer look of the houses which shelter them. Corn Market in Scarnham lay at the further end of the street called Finkelway. It was a queer, open space, which sloped downhill from the centre of the ridge on which the middle of the town was built to the valley through which the little river meandered. Save where the streets, and the road leading out to the open country, and Ellerstein cut into it, it was completely enclosed by old houses of the sort which Starmidge had already admired in the marketplace, many of them half-timbered, all of them very ancient. One or two of them were inns, some were evidently workmen's cottages, others were better-class dwelling-houses. From the description already furnished to him by Polk, Starmidge at once recognized Joseph Chestermark's abode. It was a corner-house, abutting on the road which ran out at the lower angle of this irregular space and led down to the river and Scarnham Bridge. It was by far the biggest house thereabouts, a tall, slender, stone-built house of many stories, towering high above any of the surrounding gables. And save for a very faint, dull glow which shone through the transom window of the front door, there was not a vestige of light in a single window of the seven stories. Cornmarket was a gloomy commonplace, thought Starmidge, but the little oil lamps in the cottages were riotously cheery in comparison with the darkness of the tall, gaunt Chestermark mansion. It looked like the abode of dead men. Starmidge longed to knock at that door, if only to get a peep inside the hall. But he curbed his desires and went quietly round the corner of the house. There was a high, black wall there, which led down to the grassy bank of the river. From its corner another wall ran along the riverside, separated from the stream by a path. There was a door set in this wall, and Starmidge, after carefully looking round in the gloom, quietly tried it, and found it securely locked. An intense desire to see the inside of Joseph Chestermark's garden seized the detective. Near the door, partly overhanging the garden wall, 
partly overshadowing the path and the river-bank, was a tree. Starmidge, after listening carefully and deciding that no one was coming along the path, made shift to climb that tree, just then bursting into full leaf. In another minute he was amongst its middle branches, and peering inquisitively into the garden which lay between him and the gaunt outline of the gloom-stricken house. The moon was just then rising above the roofs and gables of the town, and by its rapidly increasing light Starmidge saw that the garden was of considerable size, reining back quite sixty yards from the rear of the house, and having a corresponding breadth. Like all the gardens which stretched from the backs of the market-place houses to the river-bank, it was rich in trees. High elms and beeches rose from its lawns, and made deep shadows across them. But Starmidge was not so much interested in those trees, fine as they were, as in a building, obviously modern, which was set in their midst, completely isolated. That it was a comparatively new building he could see. The moonbeams falling full on it showed that the stone of which it was built was fresh and unstained by time or smoke. But what was it? Of what nature? For what purpose? It was neither stable, nor coach-house, nor summer-house, nor a grouping of domestic offices. No drive or path led to it. It was built in the middle of a grass plot. Round it ran a stone-lined trench. Its architecture was plain, but handsome. It possessed two distinctive features which the detective was quick to notice. One was that, at any rate on the two sides which he could see, its windows were set at a height of quite twelve feet from the ground. The other, that from its flat, parapeted roof rose a conical structure, something like the rounded stacks of glass-foundries and potteries. This was obviously a chimney, and from its mouth at that moment was emerging a slight column of smoke, which threw back curiously coloured reflections, blue and yellow and red to the moonlight which fell on its thickening spirals. Starmidge felt just as much desire to get into this queer structure as into the house behind it, and if he could have seen any prospect of taking a peep through its windows, he would have risked detection and dropped from his perch into the garden. But he judged that if the windows were twelve feet from the ground on the two sides of the building which he could see, they would be the same height on the sides which he couldn't see. Moreover, he observed that they were obscured by either dull red glass or red curtains. Clearly no outsider was intended to get a peep into this temple of mystery. What was it? What went on within it? He was about to climb down from the tree when he got some sort of answer to these questions. From within the building, muffled by the evidently thick walls, came the faintest sound of metal beating on metal. A mere rippling, tinkling sound light and musical, such as might have been made by fairy blacksmiths beating on a fairy anvil. But far away as it sounded, it was clear and unmistakable. Starmidge regained the path between the wall and the river and went slowly forward. The place, he decided, was evidently some sort of a workshop, in which was a forge. Probably Joseph Chestermark amused himself with a little amateur work in metals. He thought no more of the matter just then. He wanted to explore the river-bank along which he now walked, for according to the story of the landlady at the station hotel, it was on that river-bank that the mysterious stranger was to meet whoever it was that he spoke to over the telephone, and so far Starmidge had not had an opportunity of examining its geography. 
there was not much to examine. The river, a mere ditch, eight or ten yards in breadth, wandered through a level mead at the base of the valley, separated from the gardens by a wide path. Between Scarnham Bridge, at the foot of Corn Market, and the corner of Joseph Chestermark's big garden, and the end of Cordmaker's Alley, a narrow street which ran down from the further end of the market-place to the riverside, there were no features of any note or interest. On the other side of the river lay the deep woods through which Neil and Betty Fosdyke had passed, on their way to Ellersdeen Hollow. Starmidge had heard all about that expedition, and he glanced curiously at the black depths of the trees, wondering if John Horbury and the mysterious stranger, supposing they had met, had turned into these woods to hold their conference. He presently came to the footbridge by which access to the woods and the other bank of the river was gained, and by it he lingered for a moment or two, looking at it in its bearings to the bank-house garden and orchard on his left, and to the station hotel, the lights of which he could plainly see down the valley. Certainly, if John Horbury and the stranger desired to meet in secret, here was the place. The stranger had nothing to do but to stroll along the river-bank from the hotel. Horbury had only to step out of his orchard and meet him. Once together, they had only to cross that footbridge into the woods, to be immediately in surroundings of great privacy. Starmidge turned up Cordmaker's Alley, regained the market-place, and strolled on to Polk's private house. The superintendent was taking his ease after his day's labors, and reading the Ecclesborough evening newspapers. He tossed one of them over to his visitor. "'All there,' he said, pointing to some big headlines. "'Got it all in, just as you told it to Parkinson.' Full justice to the descriptions of both Horbury and the station hotel stranger. Smart work, eh? Power of the press, as Parkinson said, answered Starmidge with a laugh. It's very useful, the press. I don't know how they managed without it in the old days of criminal catching, Mr. Polk. Press and telegraph, eh? They're valuable adjuncts. You think all that would be in the London papers this evening? asked Polk. Sure to be, replied Starmidge. I'm hoping we'll hear something from London to-morrow. I say, I've been taking a bit of a look around one or two places to-night, quietly, you know. What's that curious building in Joseph Chestermark's garden? Polk put down his paper and looked up unusually interested. I don't know, he answered. How did you see it? I've never seen inside his garden. Climbed a tree on the river bank and looked over the wall, replied Starmidge. Well, said Polk, I did hear, some few years ago, that he was building something in that garden, but the work was done by Ecclesborough contractors, and nobody seemed ever to know much about it here. I believe Joseph's a bit of an amateur experimenter, but I don't know what he experiments in. Nobody ever goes inside his house. He's a hermit. He's got some sort of forge there, anyhow, said Starmidge, or a furnace, or something of that sort. Then they talked of other things until half-past ten when the detective retired to his inn and went to bed. He was sleeping soundly when a steady knocking at his door roused him, to hear the voice of his landlady outside. At the same time he heard the big clock of the parish church striking midnight. "'Mr. Starmidge,' said the voice, "'there's a policeman wanting you. Will you go round at once to Mr. Polk's? There's a man come from London about that piece in the newspapers.'" End of chapter 14